Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 215 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I need to say thanks to some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Ruby OK99, Ashling, Ellie Laddis, Andrew, Mary Reardon, Susan Elsie, Natalie Kozelka, Adult Wino, Leanne Baird, Cheyenne Morales, The Only Jeanette, Forte Annie, Kathleen Indy. Vanessa Davis, Heather Anderson, Christina, Brittany Taylor, Jessica Martel, In-House Graphics LLC, and Hallie Cook. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And we have a promo this week. This week's promo is The Fallen Apple Podcast. Join best friends Cassie and Chloe as they talk about all things books. Whether you're a seasoned bookworm or a casual reader looking for your next adventure, The Fallen Apple offers something for everyone. Tune in for insightful reviews, harrowing rants and monthly buddy reading. At its core, The Fallen Apple is a podcast for book lovers by book lovers, where each episode sounds like a heartwarming chat with old friends. So if warm, cosy book talk sounds like your thing, then check out The Fallen Apple podcast. The link to the podcast will be in the description of this episode and please enjoy their promo. Hey there, real life ghost story listeners. My name is Cassie. And I'm Chloe. And we're the Fallen Apple Story. Our podcast is about all things bookish and we have a book of the month where we buddy read with you guys. We rant about all the things we are reading outside of our book of the month. We even have fun holiday specials. This year we did a boozy, scary story segment that was less on the scary side and more on the drunky side. But if you guys love books and besties going off about fictional hot men and women, then check out our podcast on Spotify. Which brings us to our film review this week. Now, before we begin, I apologize for any choice language that I may use during this film review because our film review this week is Dear David. Dear David was released in 2023 and frankly, it should not have been. It has 5.8 out of 10 on IMDb and 11% on Rotten Tomatoes. Shortly after comic artist Adam responds to internet trolls, he begins to experience sleep paralysis while an empty rocking chair moves in the corner of his apartment. As he chronicles increasingly malevolent occurrences in a series of tweets, Adam begins to believe that he is being haunted by the ghost of a dead child named David. Encouraged by his boss to continue the Dear David thread, Adam starts to lose his grip on what is online and what is real. 
based on the viral Twitter thread by BuzzFeed comic artist Adam Ellis. As always, I have split this review into my likes and dislikes columns and my like column literally says, literally nothing. I liked literally nothing about this film. And I want to be really clear that I don't dislike this film because it's different from the Twitter thread. I recognise that when you have horror that's in book form or in short read form, whatever it is, you're going to have to make some changes to put it onto the big screen. I get that. We all get that. We understand that. But truly, truly, this was one of the most awful horror films I have honestly ever seen. And that's not an exaggeration. Honestly, within the first 10 minutes, I was like, oh no, oh no, this script is awful. And the script was truly awful. The script was stilted, it tried to be funny, it just wasn't funny and for some really bizarre reason, for large swathes of the dialogue in the beginning, there was this really strange, almost techno dance music playing too loud over the top of it. Who in post-production, who is looking at this and going, yes, that works? Who did that? And Adam Ellis worked in BuzzFeed while he was writing the Dear David Twitter thread and BuzzFeed is featured a lot in the film and honestly it was probably one of the worst parts of the film. So this film was made by BuzzFeed in um, collaboration with Lionsgate and BuzzFeed I think tried to be like really self-referential and tongue-in-cheek about the BuzzFeed company and what BuzzFeed produces. So there's a lot of oh god it's actually making me cringe even thinking about it. When they're in the BuzzFeed offices the dialogue is really like colloquialism heavy and cringy and it's trying to be tongue-in-cheek I think I fucking hope it is and instead of it being like oh yeah we can all cringe at how BuzzFeed you know is perceived by people and that's pretty funny and whatever actually it was just mortifying it was mortifying it was so badly written it made me want to curl up in a ball and die every single time the BuzzFeed offices were on the screen do you know what I was sitting there going dear David I'm gonna ask you three questions so that you can come and remove me from this fucking misery the dialogue was just beyond painful just beyond painful never mind the weird techno dance music that was playing over the top of it I bizarre and they had to create well, I don't, I don't think they had to create a story, but they decided to create a backstory to Dear David that didn't exist in the Twitter threads, which I understand. And uh, the story was just plain stupid. It was just a stupid story. I didn't like any of the characters. Adam Ellis's character was absolutely hideous. He just was not a likable character. And I sort of thought, you know what? Let Dear David take you away because I'm bored of you. I'm bored of you. I'm bored of your stupid friends. This story is ridiculous. I cannot get on board with it. There was this strange backstory about Dear David sort of being a bit um, obsessed with being online in the early days of the internet and then subsequently killing his father and then his mother ended up in a mental health facility and there was videos of it sort of a la The Ring. Uh, Oh God, it was just painful. It was painful. The CGI, the graphics were awful. Oh, they were so bad. And I think the thing that kind of annoyed me most about this film is that it tried to give like a hashtag be kind moral story about not trolling people on the internet. And it was so stupid and out of touch. And I really thought you didn't need to add this in. We didn't need to have a moral story as to why Dear David exists. Basically, Adam Ellis 
responds to a troll online and tells the troll to, I don't know, go die in a fire or something. And then it triggers dear David to appear. And I just thought uh, there was no need. There was no need. One of the beauties about the dear David thread was that it was completely ambiguous. There was no understanding as to where dear David came from. Adam Ellis uh, in the thread was trying to figure out what dear David was, where he came from. And as the readers of that thread, you were going on that journey with him. But by giving us this stupid moral story, oh, it was just ridiculous. And while I was watching it, I was thinking, you know, if if this Adam character is an, a grown man who is putting his artwork online and is being paid by BuzzFeed, etc., etc., and if your response to people saying your artwork isn't that good is to tell them to go die in a fire, babe, I think you deserve to be haunted. I know this review is very ranty and rambly and I'm really sorry, but I literally cannot express how much I hated this film. It 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 overtakes me when I think about it. It makes me want to get on a plane, drive to BuzzFeed, get on a plane and drive to BuzzFeed, you know what I mean, and punch somebody in the face. But the film falls into that fatal horror film flaw where you see the entirety of Dear David far too much and far too quickly in the film. And he sort of looks like Pugsley from the Adams Family. If Pugsley and an old man were somehow spliced together, it like I mean, it, he looked ridiculous. And I felt like I could fight you. I'm not as scared of you. You're, I know you're some sort of supernatural being, but I feel like one more knock to the deformed head, babe, and you're gone. And I do think the piece de resistance for me about this film was when dear David, the entity, the ghost, literally signs Adam up for Grinder, Grinder, as in the gay dating app slash hookup app, in order to try and ruin his relationship with his boyfriend, signs Adam up to Grinder. You tell me that these writers sat down and thought through the process of this entity sitting with this phone with Adam's phone in its hand, picking out a profile picture for Grinder. That entity is sitting there sending dick pics to random men on Grinder. I'm sorry, BuzzFeed. I'm sorry to say I just don't buy it. Good God, what a shit show of a film. And to point out how bad this is, I'm recording this on Wednesday. Today is Wednesday and I think I wrote the film review section maybe last week sometime. It is now dropped from 5.8 out of 10 on IMDb to 4 out of 10 on IMDb. And I think 4 out of 10 is pretty fucking generous. I think 11% is pretty fucking generous. It's a big fat zero from me. Don't bother watching it. Don't waste your money. Don't waste your time. You will only end up frustrated. Just go back and read the original Twitter thread and enjoy that instead. Because honestly, you will walk away from this film furious, confused and disappointed. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Which brings us to our story this week. Oh, I feel like I've been a little bit detoxed after that Dear David rant. I feel better about myself. Our story this week, I decided to stick with the theme of sort of virality and internet famous paranormal stories. I did not know this story. I had no idea this story existed. And then I kept seeing this documentary, The Unbinding, that was all over, all over my TikTok, all over my Instagram. I'm pretty sure Adam and Dulce from The Weekly Creep did an episode about this recently. And it is the story of the Catskill Crone, which is what the documentary on Amazon is based on. So to be really clear, the first part of this story, and I will tell you when it is a quoted part of the story, comes directly from a Reddit post. And the second part of the story comes directly from a Week in Weird article that was written by the person who ended up getting the object in this story. My initial intention was to rewrite this story and have it as a sort of creative narrative. Um, But then I thought, well, that's not really what virality is all about. Like the story of Dear David came directly from those Twitter threads. And I thought, let's keep it direct. Let's keep it exactly what these people claimed happened. The links to where you can find the original versions of this post and this subsequent article are in the description of this episode. So let's get into it. In the age of social media, everyone who wants to make it online is chasing virality. Trying to go global. It can be the reason why you end up becoming rich and famous, or the reason why you make it in your niche. Ever so often, a story like Dear David grips people's imaginations. The fear and the anticipation of the next part of the story is delicious from the safety of your warm, cosy bed. But sometimes a story passes me by even a paranormal one. Lately, I've been seeing what you might call paranormal influencers talking about a documentary on Amazon Prime called The Unbinding. Let's just say it has mixed reviews. And on my exploration of what this story might be, I realised that the story of The Unbinding actually started where all good viral stories do, the annals of Reddit. And it was originally posted eight years ago by a user called Wigged Hiker Throwaway who created a throwaway account in order to post a strange story that had happened to him and his friend. It became known as the Catskills Crone. The following is the story as taken directly from Reddit. Last weekend, my friend and I went hiking in the Catskills near Sundown Forest for what it's worth. And we found this really creepy statue while fucking around in some caves. It has nails in its eyes and a noose around its neck. It looks like it might be old. 
I don't think it's been there for very long, but it's weird because this cave was way off the trail. Someone had a fire in there not too long ago. The statue really wigged me out, but my buddy decided to take it home with him, even though I told him not to. Everyone says that there's devil worshippers that come out here to sacrifice animals and do their spells and shit, so I didn't want anything to do with this thing. A couple of days later, my friend calls me and tells me that he thinks the statue is haunted because it keeps moving from its spot and he keeps smelling weird stuff. He says he can't sleep at night because the banging keeps him awake. Now, last night someone knocked on his door, but no one was there when he opened it and he is super weirded out. He thinks he has a ghost because of the statue. It must just be a coincidence, but I think he's actually scared. Before we go set this thing on fire, I wanted to see if anyone knows what it is. Has anyone ever seen something like this or heard of a statue causing ghosts? I'm using a throwaway because I didn't want to use my main account for spooky stuff. Edit to add. My friend showed up here at like 11.30. He is out of his mind scared. I've never seen him like this before. I'm going to do my best to remember everything he just told me because it was a lot. But long story short, he's sleeping over because something is in his house. We found the statue on Sunday and like I said, I told him not to take it because it gave me bad vibes. But he took it anyway. He's been an atheist as long as I've known him so when he told me that something was going on, I thought he was just fucking with me because he knows I like to watch paranormal shows. He always made fun of me for it. It started out just as knocks and banging. But he said that by Wednesday, he started waking up in the middle of the night feeling like someone was watching. This kept happening through the week and every time he would wake up, he would smell a really strong scent like pond water. He doesn't believe any of this stuff so he just ignored it until a few days ago when the statue moved from his desk into his living room. He says that every night since Thursday it's moved into a different room than where he left it. He thought it was his dog moving it around because it smelled funny but his dog won't go anywhere near it. He says that she has actually peed in the house three nights in a row And she's never, ever done that before. Last night, someone knocked on his door at three in the morning. But when he went to open it, there was no one there. His motion lights weren't on and there weren't any cars in his driveway. He said that he opened up the door to look outside. And that's when he knew he had made a big mistake. Like he just felt he shouldn't have opened his door. That's why I made this post in the first place. At that point, I didn't have any reason not to believe him because it had gone way beyond a joke and he actually sounded really fucking scared on the phone. He kept telling me that he was going to burn the statue because he knows that something followed him home. Anyway, he stayed up all night and then decided to go to the movies to take his mind off it. When he got home, he said it felt like everything was fine and he decided to finally go to bed. And this is where it gets super fucked up. He says that when he woke up, which wasn't until like 10, it was because his dog was barking like crazy. He said the pond water smell was stronger than ever 
and when he went out into his hallway, he saw all of these muddy footprints everywhere, not like shoe prints, but barefoot. All of his doors and windows were locked. After someone knocked on his door, he freaked out and made sure everything was locked up. So there's no fucking way anyone could have gotten inside. Sitting in the living room was the fucking statue which had moved again. And he says that when he started to go near it, he heard someone breathing. Like his grandpa with the tracheotomy. He pieced the fuck out and now he and the dog are sleeping in my guest room tonight. I've never seen him this scared and he even started crying. I've no fucking idea what to do. I believe him because he has no reason to lie to me about this because it's way too far to be a joke now. I know that everyone says not to burn it or whatever, so what the fuck do we do? He wants me to go to his house to get the statue tomorrow, but I'm too fucking freaked out to take it back to where we found it because I don't want to see whoever put it there. But that is not where our story ends. In this instance, posting this story on Reddit proved to be helpful for our wigged out hiker. He sent the effigy to a man who had appeared in the comments of his Reddit post. A man who owned a travelling paranormal museum and was interested in taking the figure off his hands. That's where the story essentially stops for the original poster, but not for Greg Newkirk, who was now the proud owner of the little figurine. He wrote about his experiences in a 2016 article in Week in Weird. And I'm going to relate to you exactly what he wrote in that article. However, there are brief instances where I will interject and add to the story as was told in the documentary The Unbinding. But for the most part, the story is told in Greg Newkirk's own words. Just a few months prior to the frightening Reddit post, my wife, Dana, and I had the good fortune to assist the Finding Bigfoot team as paranormal experts in their search for supernatural Sasquatch sightings. But I never anticipated that the two-week adventure in the California mountains would result in the acquisition of a new haunted object. At the tail end of the season's Finding Bigfoot filming schedule, one of the production assistants, Chris Carter, was taking a break in the production van, scrolling through Reddit, when he stumbled onto the hiker's thread. Having spent a lot of time on the road with Dana and I, hearing tales of our haunted objects during the Supernatural episode shoot, he logged in and commented that the hikers should get in touch with us, passing along our contact information. And later that night, an email arrived in my inbox. It was the hiker, whose name was Danny, and he was requesting my help. He pointed me towards his Reddit post for a quick backstory, and it didn't take me long to suggest that he not only return the statue to the place that he had found it, but to apologise to whoever or whatever they'd stolen from. I asked him a few questions about the location they'd discovered the figure, and warned him against burning, throwing away, or otherwise destroying the object which could have potentially made things even worse for the two. I ended my correspondence by telling Danny that, if he was truly frightened, we could handle, store and study the object safely. Two days later, I received another email. Thanks for the advice. Today we went back to my friend's house to get the statue and return it. When we got there, I saw the muddy footprints he was talking about 
and the whole place smelled like a dog had just rolled around in dirt. His dog wouldn't even come into the house. He went to show me where the statue was when he left last night, but it was gone. When we found it, it was in his hallway and there was a big crack in the wall like it had been thrown there. He swears that he never touched the thing and left it in his living room. We did what you said and explained that we were sorry about taking it and that we wanted to give it back to the cave and asked it what we should do. I don't know if it was the feeling you were talking about, but we both just felt like we should never go back to that cave again. He said that he felt like we needed to send it to you. When we were standing in the hallway talking to this thing, his dog started barking like crazy outside. And when we went to see what was going on, we both thought we saw a woman standing in the dark corner of his living room. She was totally naked, really old and dripping water, and her eyes sort of glowed in the dark. She was hunched over near his shelves. We both freaked the fuck out and ran outside, and this was in the middle of the day. Whoever it was wasn't there when we went back in. We grabbed the statue and apologised again wrapped it in a pillowcase and put it in a box. He's just going to send it to you. To answer your questions, I didn't see any jewellery or pictures or anything by the statue, but there were a lot of leaves covering everything. There was some broken glass and a cup near the fire. My friend says that he thinks there might have been some hair on it, but he brushed it off without thinking about it. We don't remember any weird symbols or anything in the cave. There were a lot of twigs piled around the foot of the statue, but that's it. Everyone has always talked about how people go into these parts of the woods to worship the devil and do ceremonies and stuff, even when my parents were kids. I fucking told him to leave this statue there because it was probably from some weird ceremony out there. But he never believed in ghosts or the devil or anything. Right now, it's sitting in the trunk of his car at his house. Give me your address and we'll mail it to you tomorrow. If I knew it was going to be this bad, I would never have let him take it out of that cave. Thanks for not calling us fucking idiots and telling us how stupid we are like the rest of the thread. This is the whole reason I used a throwaway to begin with. Less than a week later, a small box arrived at Weird HQ, addressed to the Travelling Museum of the Paranormal and Occult. Dana Matthews, my wife and fellow museum curator, carried the box into the Weird HQ office and placed it on my desk. We carefully cut the package open to reveal a hard lump wrapped in a stained pillowcase. As we slowly peeled back the cloth, rusty nails hammered into wooden eyes became visible, followed by a noose tightened around the statue's neck. Whatever purpose this piece was created for, it wasn't nice. The figure looked menacing, but there were a few things that were a bit confusing about the piece. The most obvious detail was that while the carving itself looked weathered and aged, as did the nails, the rope wrapped around its neck couldn't have been more than a year old. The carving had obviously been placed in the cave recently, with the new addition of the noose if the entire thing wasn't just a hoax to begin with. As we do with all new items that arrive at the museum, we snapped a series of preliminary photos capturing the artefact just as it was when it arrived. We jotted down some notes and took a few measurements. Then, we locked the office and left to run errands. When you've been sent countless haunted objects throughout the years, it's hard to shake the preconceived notion 
that the creepy porcelain clowns, weird paintings and African idols will never live up to their alleged reputations. They rarely do. So for us, the arrival of the crone was just another day at the office. Later that evening, while sitting in the living room watching a movie, Dana and I were startled by a commotion in the office. Thinking it was our two cats, I volunteered to break up the fight, only to realise upon walking into the office that the door had been closed the entire time. Nothing seemed out of place, and the cats were nowhere to be found. In fact, our feline familiars were in another room entirely, cowering beneath the bed, afraid to leave. I walked back into the office in an attempt to look for the source of the noises, but everything seemed in order. Until I almost stepped on Jesus. Lying on the floor was a plastic figurine of Christ, normally found nailed to a crucifix. As I turned him over in my hands, I realised that he was missing an arm. On the complete opposite side of the room, swinging silently on a cross hung in the corner, was Jesus' missing appendage. Something had not only managed to pull Christ from the crucifix without removing it from the wall, it had thrown the figure across the room. I've still never been able to find the nails from Jesus' hands and feet. Sitting directly below the now desecrated cross was the crone. Whether or not the new artefact was to blame, Dana and I wasted no time setting up a 24-hour surveillance on the object. We placed a motion-activated trail camera in the corner of the office, facing directly in the direction that the desecrated crucifix hung, covering a selection of the most active artefacts in our collection. If something was causing anomalous movement, we were going to capture it. For nearly two months, the motion-activated camera sat in the room, but when we checked the SD card each morning, there was no evidence of any paranormal activity. Sure, there were occasional bumps in the night, But when you store hundreds of haunted, cursed and supernaturally influenced objects in your home, you come to expect it. Still, there was nothing to point towards the crone being to blame for any of it. Then, on March the 2nd, between the hours of 3am and 4am, the camera triggered three times. Initial analysis showed a few strange anomalies floating in and out of the frame one of which even appeared to have its own light source. But it wasn't until we watched the frames together that we discovered something really eerie. The crone had moved, ever so slightly, on its own. Things only got stranger from there. Several weeks later, with no further anomalous activity captured, Dana called me into the living room to ask me why I had stood on the furniture after a shower, pointing to the wet footprints that appeared to stand on the back of our couch. Only I had not taken a shower for hours. For days, the earthy scent of pond water lingered in the house, with an intense feeling of dread and paranoia following it. There was an undeniable sense that something was with us, just waiting for the right moment to reveal itself. One evening, after enduring the overbearing weight of a hidden presence and stink of algae for two weeks, we'd had enough. We were in the middle of a new episode of Paranormal Lockdown when the smell of pond water became so great that we couldn't stand it. Haunted objects like misbehaving children 
tend to respond and retaliate to the attention given to them during tantrums. But our usual routine of ignoring the bad behaviour wasn't working. We were past due for a sit-down discussion with the crone. No one interrupts our paranormal television, not even terrifying entities. I stormed into the office, grabbed the carving and marched back into the living room, slamming it down on the coffee table. I sat back down on the couch and began addressing the entity directly, something that should never be done lightly. I explained that we were happy to give the crone a home, but as this was our house, we had rules. It's a speech I've given to most of the objects in the museum at one time or another, and one that tends to work. If we'd left you with the hikers, I said, you would have found your way into a fire pit or a garbage can. If you found your way to a priest, you'd be bound and buried or worse, locked on a dusty shelf for years. We're happy for you to live here, but only if you respect the situation. If you've got unfinished business, we'll help you put it to bed. But if you don't treat us respectfully, you're going in the box. In the box is a phrase we've reserved for artifacts that don't play nice, have nasty side effects or are just plain malevolent. These objects, unlike the rest in the collection, have their own dedicated lockboxes. Solitary confinement, if you will. Usually the threat of a lockup is enough to pacify a situation. Not this time. As soon as I uttered the magic words, Dana sprang up from the couch, drawing my attention to the sound of rushing water from the other side of the house. We'd dealt with a broken pipe in the recent past, and the sound of water spilling out onto our laundry room floor was a panic-inducing noise. We rushed towards the sound, only for it to cease as we entered the hall. There was no water, but behind us, back in the living room, we could hear the dull thud of something hitting the floor. The crone had managed to roll off the coffee table and under our television stand. As I knelt down and reached under the stand to grab the carving, Dana yelled out and rushed to my side. When I turned to look at her, she was propping the television up with both hands. The screen had nearly fallen directly onto my head. As we shared a brief look of fear and agreement, Three loud knocks reverberated from the living room wall, rattling the picture frames and flickering the bulb from the single lamp providing our room with light. In the box it is, I muttered. That evening the crone became one of the few objects not stored in an open-air display when not on tour. We prepared a special box for the statue, wrapped it back in the pillowcase it had arrived in, and clicked a padlock shut. The strange sense and terrible feelings all but disappeared, but the shadowy presence never quite left. The purpose of the Travelling Museum of the Paranormal and Occult has always been to provide the public with a rare, hands-on experience with haunted items that they can't get anywhere else in the world. But it was clear that the crone was different. Still, we believe that the reality of these artefacts is important to share with the world, even if they're potentially dangerous. So despite our reservations, we began to take the crone on tour with the museum, under the caveat that it was strictly a look-and-don't-touch artefact. Immediately, people began to experience strange symptoms around the object, the most common of which were burning sensations in the eyes as if the statue was trying to avert the gaze of curious onlookers. 
Overwhelming fear and anxiety accompanied the opening of the crone's padlocked home, and the hands-off policy barely mattered, as visitors seemed to instinctively recoil from the artefact. Psychics and sensitives in particular had the most visceral reaction to the crone. Some believe it was created as a vessel for inhuman spirits. Some believe it was a curse intended to blind and kill an unlucky victim. Acclaimed psychic Chip Coffey wanted to straight up exorcise the figure with holy water blessed by the Pope himself. One gifted sensitive and medium was kind enough to spend some time reading the crone for us at a paranormal conference and presented us with a few interesting ideas. She believes that whatever is attached to the crone is an it and not a she and that this particular vessel and cave was used several times over the course of many years. The purpose wasn't always the same, but the carving and the entity attached to it was. This would explain the mismatched age of the carving, nails and rope. She also mentioned that whatever was contained within the crone knew she could see it and explain its purpose. And the entity wasn't happy about it. As the museum travelled to events around the country from... Ohio State Reformatory to Colorado Stanley Hotel, thousands of people weighed in on the crone. Many of them experienced the musty smell of stagnant water, felt the creeping onset of the entity's presence, and a few even captured photographs of the artefact appearing to move on its own. While the opinions of the crone's who and why weren't always the same, there was one thing everyone agreed upon. Whatever was attached to this crude, hand-carved statue was not very nice. I want to interrupt this article written by Greg Newkirk at this point to add that in the documentary, they elaborate on a curious incident that happened at one of these paranormal conventions. A man approached their stand repeatedly throughout the day, begging to see the crone, and eventually, Greg and Dana took the box, unlocked it, unwrapped the crone from its pillowcase and removed it from the box. They immediately felt that this was the wrong thing to do. An energy seemed to burst from the box, from the crone, and it careened down the aisle of the convention. A few stalls down from them was a woman who had been selling books on witchcraft and the occult, and her cup of soda randomly exploded and spilled all over her books. Further down, a man began bleeding from his nose and fitting violently. There seemed to be a suggestion in the documentary that the crone had somehow done this, that a supernatural power or entity had burst forth and wreaked some small havoc on those that it could reach. I thought it was important to note that based on this anecdote from a paranormal convention, that the crone wasn't just passively impacting people, that it seemed to them to be actively impacting people. Nearly six months after the crone arrived at Weird HQ, it remained on the very short no-touching list when on tour, and sealed in a padlocked case when not on display. If not just because of the apparently malevolent phenomena surrounding the object, but because we still can't seem to understand its intended purpose. With the paranormal, intention is everything. I cannot stress this enough. If you go into a haunted location intending to have a scary, aggressive experience, you'll probably have one. If you intend to commune with the peaceful spirits residing in the location, 
you'll more than likely have a peaceful experience. The same goes for magic. With just a cursory glance, it's easy to see that someone focused a lot of time, energy and intent into the creation of the crone. It was carved by hand, probably with a very specific purpose in mind. Every rusty nail received a mental command as it was hammered into the figure's wooden eye sockets. The noose around its neck was tied with a hidden desire in mind. My own personal belief is that the crone was created as an attempt to summon the spirits of a local witch for purposes unknown. The location of its discovery, coupled with the specifics of the carving's creation, leads me to believe that someone was aiming to commune with, and contain, a particular spirit. Dana, on the other hand, believes that the figure was created as some sort of protection object, used to ward a sacred ritual area. Some good that did. Yet another psychic isn't sure why it was carved, only that the Babylonian spirit Marduk, a powerful entity with 50 names, is attached to it. It's interesting to note that Marduk is often associated with water. I've reached out to Danny several times in the last five months to no avail. It doesn't help that he used a throwaway social media account to seek help, and it seems that he's completely abandoned it, and by proxy, abandoned any solid connection to the place the carving was discovered. We've been able to narrow down the potential discovery point to a 500 plus acre piece of land in the Catskills Mountains and have already formulated a plan to seek out the cave ourselves later this year. The specific plot of land already has connections to early witchcraft trials in the northeast, which may provide some missing pieces to the puzzle. Last month, while under monitored 24-7 live video feed, the crone was observed by as many as a hundred viewers at a time. Electromagnetic fluctuations, light anomalies and feelings of general unease were reported by observers, but the most frightening reports came from viewers, who experienced strange activity manifesting in their own homes as they logged into the video feed. Power outages, electronic equipment failures and burning eyes all seemed to announce the arrival of the familiar earthy pond-like scent. And in one case, a visit from the crone herself. In the final days of the carving surveillance, we asked the viewers for experiment ideas and landed on using a voodoo coffin nail, holy water and a crucifix as trigger objects. On her last night under 24-7 watch, the crone appeared to flick the nail away. I think it's important that I interject here again. Greg Newkirk references that in one of the live streams, someone experienced a visit from the crone herself. The documentary provides a deeper dive into this experience. In the comments on the live stream, a friend of Dana and Greg named Jason posted, Melissa told me I can't let the crone near the baby, so my experiment with leaving it in the crib is a no-go. It was clear that the comment was meant as a joke, but Jason soon heard thumping running footsteps in his house. When he went to the kitchen to check, he stood in a puddle on the kitchen floor. And then he realised that there were wet footprints in the kitchen that led to the front door and then back into the house. The front door had been shut and locked and was now open. There were no footprints or tracks in the fresh snow outside. He followed the footsteps up the stairs and they ended at his child's crib, where there was now a puddle. 
Luckily, their child was not in the house at the time. Greg's post on Week in Weird ends with the following final instalment. This morning I woke to a chilling message sent to the Travelling Museum of the Paranormal and Occult Facebook page. The message was from Jackie J, a regular in the museum's live video feed chat and she was informing me that not only could she not view the Paranormal Research Lab's live feed when the crone or the idol of nightmares were on display, but that an entity had come to her in her sleep to deliver a message. I've stayed up and watched your live events and your items being streamed for the past month. I'm a former massage therapist with training in Reiki. Once I started my training was when I really started seeing and feeling the paranormal. At about 4.40ish this morning, I woke up to the weight of someone sitting on my back. I figured it was our two-year-old daughter. That's how heavy this was. When I moved, I actually felt each leg-like limb extend and slide off me. My whole body was flushed with heat and broke out into immediate goosebumps and sweat. A few moments later, there was a loud bang, followed by my two dogs running to the living room from their beds in our laundry room. But the worst part of this is, prior to waking up, I was dreaming that a woman was whispering in my ear that Greg has swallowed the missing crucifix nails, that she dropped them in his mouth while he was sleeping. That's why I wrote to you guys. I'm taking everything with a grain of salt, as I know you will. Just wanted to share why I'm not going back to sleep tonight. For my daughter's sake, I have to be a bit cautious. I've brought home strays before, unknowingly. As soon as I read this message, a cold chill ran down my spine. Just days after the crone arrived at Weird HQ and started dropping televisions and desecrating crucifixes, I came down with some severe stabbing stomach pains which lasted about a week. The piercing pain was enough to make me consider a hospital visit, but I never once connected them to the crone's arrival. Not until now. I have learned to ignore or listen to spirits as needed, Jackie wrote. But that one was so specific I wanted to tell you. She's very proud of that. Did the entity attached to the crone really drop the missing crucifix nails into my mouth as I slept, causing my severe stomach pain? I'll leave that for you to decide. While that is the end of the 2016 Week in Weird article, it certainly was not the end of the story. Greg and Dana decided that they needed to bring the crone back to where she came from, but they were keen to find out where she had come from before that in the first place, who had carved her and why, and what was the entity that was attached to it. When they drove to the place in the Catskills where they believed that the crone had been found, they realised that there was a large Ukrainian community there and began to wonder if the crone was part of some Eastern European traditional folklore or magic. They managed to find very similar hand-carved statues on a Russian Etsy site that were designed to be used in altar magic. And when they dove deeper, they looked into Baba Yaga, but she didn't quite fit the look of the figurine. And then they found the story of the Kikimora, an Eastern European folkloric creature which was first believed to be the explanation for sleep paralysis. She is depicted as an old hunched up hag and lives in a swamp. Her clothes are made from damp moss and leaves. She could be identified by her wet footprints. 
which she would leave around the house. It was believed that this Kikimura could be summoned to cause harm and wreak havoc in a particular household and once she was in your house, she was very, very hard to get rid of. So just to reiterate before we before we get into this, that the original post was from a post on Reddit and it is linked in the description and the article was from Greg Newkirk and again the link is in the description. It was a 2016 Week in Weird article and I sort of added in bits of narrative that were furthered by watching the documentary. Also in the documentary they did like a 3D scan of the crone which ended up being really freaky and they did like lots of paranormal experiments using the crone like they did the Estes method which is where one person is blindfolded and has earphones on and then a person asks the questions and the blindfolded person hears the answers in the earphones if that makes sense. And they have like the video footage of when Jason believed that the crone had come into his house. So there's lots of interesting stuff in the documentary. And the thing I liked most about the documentary was their deep dive into Eastern European folklore. And they got in a an, a, an expert on Eastern European folklore and on Russian folklore. And it was really interesting, that part of the story. I was really like, oh, that is so interesting, so engaging. Things about folklore that I just didn't know. Like this concept of the Kikimora, I was completely blown away by. They also talked in the documentary about a another kind of goddess in Eastern European folklore called Mokosh, who was like a female goddess in the Slavic pantheon. And then that seems to have come from the word mockery, which is the Russian word for wet. And she was the goddess of moisture, fate and witchcraft. So they did a lot of exploration into her as well because they realised that their crone looked similar to the carvings of Mokosh. And listen, I had no idea of any of this. So that was really interesting and definitely worth a watch, even if it's just for that. And just to say it has started raining quite heavily in the studio, not in the studio, not inside, outside. And the rain is pattering joyfully against the window, but it does mean that it may infiltrate the recording. So just to let you know, it's not the crone coming for me in her water dripping state. It is outside the window. And look, I'm I'm going to be the first to admit this story completely passed me by. And I just really don't know how it passed me by because it's a great story. One of the interesting things that I like about it, right, is, is that it, It seems that the original poster, this Danny person, was not looking for virality. It seems that he didn't set out to become a viral sensation because of this story. The original post, and this is no shade to Danny as the original poster, it is sort of full of typos. It's not crafted in a way that makes it like somebody has sat down and been like, oh, how can I make a really convincing, scary story? And after he sends the crone to Greg Newkirk, he doesn't really feature in the story again. He doesn't make an appearance in the documentary. I don't know if Greg reached out to him for the documentary. I have no idea. But he doesn't really feature in the story again. It's like he went, I'm getting rid of this crone and I don't want anything more to do with this. The end. So when they were trying to figure out where this crone, where this this wooden effigy came from, what they realised was that the effigy itself was likely from 
some something like this Etsy seller that this Russian Etsy seller that was on Etsy, but that the rope and the nails came from the Walmart that was like at the bottom of the mountain. So it was clearly a modern form of witchcraft or some sort of witchcraft or magic. And when I when when you see the pictures of this little effigy, I'll post them on Instagram, Patreon and on Facebook. I mean, that thing is freaky looking and it definitely looks like something that would be used to bring at the very least negative energy into somebody's life. Like it is a weird looking little carving. But do I secretly want one? Yeah, I do. One of the interesting things that they talk about in the documentary is that Greg kind of recognises that people might perceive it as narcissistic, that they believe there's like a goddess attached to this effigy. And actually, I kind of agree with him. I had a bit of a look at who, for example, Marduk was. Now, they didn't say anything about Marduk being attached to the effigy. It was something that was said to them by a psychic who believed that the god Marduk was attached to this effigy. And when I looked it up, like Marduk was a literal creator god for the Babylonian people. They referred to Marduk as the Lord. He was like this god of 50 names for the Babylonian people. And I'm sorry to say, but I don't think it's very likely that his spirit is going to be in a wooden crone with nails from Walmart and a rope from Walmart in a random house in America causing wet footsteps around the place. I'm sorry to say, I just don't think that's likely to happen. However, what I do think is more interesting is this concept of a kikimora, which I'd never heard before. And it's really interesting that this hag this kikimora is the sleep hag that we talk about all the time or at least the russian and eastern european version of this sleep hag that we talk about all the time and when they talk about how she presents herself in sleep paralysis but she is also depicted as being this old hunched up hag that's what the original poster and his friend saw in the house in the beginning they smelled this wet damp pond like musty smell around the house the wet footprints that were left around the house these are all things that are associated with this entity of Kikimora and what is really interesting is that when Greg got this email from a follower to say look I'm I'm really sorry to send you this but you know I had this dream last night that this crone this entity put the nails of the crucifix into your mouth she talks about how it it came to her and was sitting on her back, which is very similar to the experiences of people who have sleep paralysis, that this entity is lying on their back, sitting on their back or on their chest. And I just found that very, very strange. And I do recognise that there are a lot of people who listen to the podcast who dismiss anything kind of vaguely sleep related or anything that happens at night time as being sleep paralysis and therefore being you know, caused by your own brain rather than being anything supernatural. But I just, there's something about sleep paralysis that always just stops me in my tracks a little bit. It really does. And especially when you hear stories like this, where you have this specific entity that is responsible for sleep paralysis. And it has these really clearly defined characteristics of wet footprints, pond smell, etc., And then they realise that this crone that they found came from a community that had a huge population of people of Ukrainian descent and Ukrainian people. 
Like, is it possible that somebody used this crone, this hag, this little effigy with nails in its eyes and a noose around its neck, that they used it to summon a kikimura into somebody's house that they didn't like and then these two guys innocently enough just happened to come across it and pick it up and stupidly bring it home and therefore they ended up with kikimura in their house oh this story man i will say that when i initially started researching this story and reading about it i was a bit like okay it's not really that interesting but it definitely got more interesting as we went along and that link to the Kikimura is the bit of the story that has made me really go, hmm, that's interesting. But I would love to know what you guys think. Do you think that the original poster, Danny, just made up a story for clout on Reddit? Or do you think that the original story was genuine? There's a part of me that really does think the original story was genuine, but I want to know what you think of it. Do you think that Greg and Dana took the effigy off of this person's hands and saw a an opportunity to create a good story. Do you think that's what it is? Or do you think actually maybe this was some sort of ritualistic magic? And on top of that, do you think it was some sort of ritualistic magic that was used to summon this particular, this particular entity? Because it says on the Wikipedia that this entity would be summoned by people who were building houses if they didn't like the person who was going to be living in the house because this entity would cause you great trouble in your household. So do you think that's what it was? And then these poor unfortunate hikers and subsequently Greg and Dana just happened to get mixed up in it. Let me know what you think. Hello, this is Editing Me from the Future. I realised when I was editing this that I did not, in fact, reference anything that happened after this point. So what did they do with the effigy? Where is the crone now? What happened afterwards? I will say that I think that Dana and Greg dealt with this situation very sensitively and very respectfully. I think the norm in paranormal TV shows and documentaries such as this has now become to be as provocative as possible with lots of swearing and aggressiveness. But actually what they did was they got some experts involved. They consulted with people who knew about Eastern European folklore and folk magic. And they took the crone back to where it belonged, back to where it was found. And they did an unbinding spell. Um, Dana has been a practicing witch for many, many years. And you know what? I respected them for it. I thought, well done. Because whether or not you believe that this thing is haunted, I think it's important to recognize that this effigy, this little carving, formed a part of somebody's belief system. And I respected them for that. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember, the link to the original Reddit post and the link to the Week in Weird article from 2016 are in the description of this episode. If you want to see the pictures of the effigy, then they are on Instagram, Facebook, and on Patreon. Thank you so much for listening. And if you would like to send in your own spooky story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for some extra spooky content, you can subscribe to the Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad-free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.